Hello, I'm James Fitzsimons, and welcome to The Career Scoop, a podcast all about career progression, advice, and experiences aimed at assisting those who are on career transition. My guest today is Gavin Gallagher. Gavin is the Director of Earlsford Group and has been involved in the development of commercial real estate and corporate workplace solutions for more than two decades. He is responsible for operations at East Point, a large award-winning office campus developed by Earlsford back in the 1990s. East Point is home to 50 plus corporate occupiers, including Oracle and Google. The occupiers employ close to 9,000 people. Pre-COVID, they would show up to work at East Point every day. The pandemic has transformed how people work, and these days Gavin spends a good deal of his time speaking with the stakeholders to try to read the tea leaves as to the future of work and how it relates to the built environment, specifically the workplace and office. Gavin is a father of five children, ranging in age from under two to 18, and is obsessed with health and fitness. He's hyper curious about human behavior, personal development and leadership. He writes, speaks and mentors on the topic of real estate investment, innovation and impact with his own podcast, Behind the Facade. Gavin, it's great to have you on The Career Scoop. Uh, delighted to be here, uh, James. Thank you very much. And, and I noted from your intro, you left out that you're an architect by, 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 by training. Am I correct? That's correct, but I don't really identify as an architect uh, anymore. Um, I suppose it's, I've been 20 years in the real estate kind of uh, development and investment sector. So architecture, although I, you know, I did qualify and I did practice for a while. I, it's been a long time since I held a pen or sort of did any kind of AutoCAD drawings. Yeah. But for me, as a, as a, I don't know an awful lot about obviously the, the, the property space, but you do understand how buildings are designed and built, and it give, must give you an eye, uh, you know, give it, help you to translate what's in front of you, how you might improve it or make it better or make it bigger. So that's really where I would... Oh, yeah. I mean, from my point of view, I mean, architecture, it really opened my eyes to the kind of whole power of design and, and, and how the kind of strategies that you use when you're coming up with a design idea and stuff. And uh, the reality is, is from my perspective, anyway, um, my, I, could, I could do an awful lot more with just being a, an investor and developer because ultimately an investor and developer is the person who finances the architect. And what I didn't like being just an architect was often a client would come along and they would have a kind of a fixed idea of what they want to achieve and they'd be employing you and they, you know, you had to go along with whatever it was. And often that meant compromises and, and things that I didn't really want to kind of uh, be a part of. Sometimes we were working for people who were, they had a very, very tight budget and uh, you would make some sort of small suggestion, you know, to improve the overall appearance. Oh no, don't want that. And I can remember just saying, yeah, I'm not prepared to make those compromises. Now, of course, there is a lot of compromise when you're talking about design and things like that. But uh, I prefer being on the, the money side of the transaction so that I can decide, okay, how much does the project actually, you know, is it worth, how much can we afford to put into the actual design and things like that. So I really, I do hire architects to do a lot of the work, but tends to be, they are far more uh, good at the kind of the regulations and the technical detail and stuff. Um, I, I would like to think that I'm still involved in design insofar as I come up with an idea and a strategy. And we work with big employers 
that um, that employ thousands of people and stuff here in East Point. And those guys, they, um, you know, they want a certain type of building. And it's my job to kind of know what it is that they are looking for and how are we going to deliver that. And then I go and talk to the architects and the engineers and the design team. And I kind of tell them, look, this is what it needs to look like. This is the way the investment market is moving. We've got to make sure we, you know, we don't forget these items. And, and you end up kind of with the, the result that you want influenced by me but you know at the end of the day it's a big team effort uh, i'm glad you, you share that because i suppose in your in your business history for 25 years you've seen the highs and lows and i know you've been on the property side on the wrong side of that you want to share just give us a, <laughs> a, a, a bit of background on, on on your your property career today sure well i mean it's funny it's all kind of interconnected and um, going back to you know the architecture thing i had a small practice. I'd worked in a large practice and I got kind of fed up with the whole corporate thing where you, you know, you, you, you do this little job every day and I wanted the bigger picture stuff. So I started my own practice. It was a small practice. I was doing kind of house extensions and things like this. And at the same time, I had this kind of big vision. I said, I want to be a developer as well as an architect. And so I had come up with this company name called Galdivar, okay? And people used to joke about it, that it sounded like a dinosaur or something like that. But the Galdivar was Gallagher Development Architecture. And I wanted to combine both of those. And, uh, and so I started with the architecture. I knew that. And all you have to do is call yourself an architect and go out and start getting clients and stuff. And now you're an architect. But the development side of it was a bit more elusive. And uh, so I had clients, I started doing house extensions, and it was a bit frustrating, let's just say. I, I was working for a client doing a small house extension and they had this small budget. And so my fee was even smaller. Like it's usually based on a percentage. And at the same time, I'd found this small little sort of plot of land in the West Coast of Ireland. And it was, I remember it was 25,000 to buy this plot of land. And I bought it and I used my architectural skills to go and get planning permission. And I went and got planning permission to put four houses on this site. And I went then to this local auctioneer and I said, can you, you know, tell me what would I sell each of these? Because I was trying to do the mathematics and figure out, okay, how much can I afford and all that. And he went off to do his maths and he came back and said, Gavin, if you have got planning permission to go on that site, I have a builder who will buy it straight off you tomorrow. And I was like, oh, you know, I want to be the developer. I want to do this. How much is he prepared to pay? And remember my 25 grand he gave me 125 grand um, for the site with the benefit of the planning on it. And I can remember this blew my mind because at the same time, I was doing this architectural job for this couple and the job was dragging on for months and months and months. And I was getting more and more frustrated with the compromises and things like that. And my total fee for that job was 8,000. And I can remember when it came to the end of the project, they had spent an extra additional 30,000 or something like that. And by rights, I was entitled to another three grand of a, of a fee on top. Because when you add to that budget, it, it's a lot of extra work for me. It's like integrating all these things that they've kind of bought and decided upon. And I asked for the extra 3,000 and they fought me tooth and nail. And right around the time that this argument over fee was being argued, I suddenly got the 125 grand for my site. And I remember thinking, right, we're done with that business there. No more architecture. Let's go straight into being an investor and a developer and stuff. So that was the beginning of, uh, and that was back in very, uh, it was early 
90s, uh, sorry, early 2000s. And I took the 100,000 sort of profit that I made in that and I bought another site. And this site was, uh, it was in the Fox Rock area and I basically partnered up with somebody who was more experienced and kind of knew what he was doing. And so we, we started going for planning permission on that. And unbeknownst to myself, that project would take three years to get planning permission for. And so I was in this situation where, okay, I've put all my money into this and uh, we're waiting for the planning permission to kind of come through. And we got turned down twice. And then, so this really dragged out the whole thing. And I was kind of sitting there saying, you know, it doesn't feel great, you know, uh, when you're waiting for all this. And so I started looking around and, and looking for other jobs. So what I did was I pivoted the business, the architectural business into development management. And what I did was I went out and I was telling people that I, if you've got a project to develop, I will do that for you. And uh, I've got the skills to do it and all this. So what that did was it introduced a load of people that had projects ready to go and they wanted somebody to run them for them. So I was able to jump into that. And what was really interesting was the value add straight away. Uh, instead of you know getting 8,000 fee, suddenly I was, for the same amount of work, I was getting 80,000 fee. And because people perceived your value as, as much higher because you were kind of delivering on the project. And so that was a real eye-opener. And I started earning much, much bigger fees. And so I was now able to direct those fees into new investment projects. So I went after this project out in, uh, in the Clondalkin area, and I bought these properties. And I can remember we bought a property for 800,000 and myself and a partner and went for planning permission to split it into three smaller units. And just by splitting it into those three separate units and then finding tenants for each of them, I put it in the market and we sold it for 2.4 million. And so this huge profit, like, and I, that was such an eye opener for me because I had no idea it was, it was possible to, you know, I, I, you know, the 25 grand to 125 was a, a nice kind of jump five X jump, but I kind of thought you were starting at a low figure. So maybe it doesn't translate that when you do the bigger projects, it's possible to do similar kind of jumps. But this one proved that, wow, you know, this is really lucrative business to be in. So I started going after more of that. And what happened was I, I did that again. I bought something else in Clondalkin and it was just, it was this crazy Celtic tiger. And uh, you may remember just, you know, there was, uh, you know, developers were kind of getting a bad name because they were flying around in helicopters and all of this kind of driving flashy cars. And of course, <clears throat> I was a young, younger guy and I was caught up in this. And suddenly I was able to afford a nicer car and all this. And um, I bought a project out in Clondalkin, another project, and I bought it for, I think I paid 1.25 million for this thing. And I wanted to get planning permission, do it, you know, repeat, rinse and repeat, basically the same thing that I had done before. And no sooner I closed the deal and this friend of mine rings me up, uh, who's an, an agent. And he said, did you buy that property in Clondalkin? I said, yeah, yeah, I just closed it. And he goes, I have, a, I have somebody who wanted to buy it and they're really disappointed that they lost out and would you sell it? And I kind of went, well, you know, I have plans and I'm going to make some good money on this. And anyway, uh, not, a, not a word of exaggeration, six weeks later, sold that property for 3.75 million. And so 2.5 million profit in six weeks. It just blew my mind that this was, so this was the way 
that the early 2000s were for me. It was millions made on a project, millions made on a project. Then the, the first project that it mentioned, the, the housing project that 100, my 100,000 profit went into, that, the three years it passed, that started, uh, we got planning finally, eventually over the line. And suddenly that was all jumping up in value. And so suddenly something we had thought we might make a million of profit on, we were looking like we were going to make about 8 million of profit on it, uh, split between our partners. So I would like to say that I was very restrained and sort of uh, shrewd and, uh, <laughs> you know, that I had done the right thing and, you know, put money aside and, and, and put it into kind of like stable investments. Not at all. I was just, I was a bit hooked now. I, I kind of, in my mind, I had figured out the, the magic formula to making millions and that this was just going to be, the rest of my career was going to be deal after deal after deal of that type. Uh, getting larger and larger and larger, and uh, and so I kind of thought, right, well, wh- why would you wait for the you know the money to come in to have the big house and the flash car? Why don't I just do that now? How I you know because it's so easy to go to the banks and borrow money for it. So I went and had the house in Spain and the big house in Fox Rock and the apartment in New York, and I just started going on this spending spree, thinking that this. You know, what I had achieved over the last five years was going to continue for the next five years. And then 2008 came along and boy, was I humbled. I had just embarked on this Spanish project and I paid, we, we agreed a contract. I raised money with investors and stuff. We agreed to pay 42 million for a big shopping center in the south of Spain. And the day that the deal closed was the same week that Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so it just was this kind of ominous feeling like, uh-oh, things seem to be changing. And I was, and basically what happened in the end was I went from having a couple of million net worth to being negative 16 million uh, at one point. And I can remember doing my, you know, rep- doing my reports for the banks who wanted kind of an update on your, your current state, you know, your assets and liabilities. And it popped up on the screen minus 16. And I can remember thinking, did I put a zero in wrong somewhere? What? And going back over the numbers and realizing, oh my God, I am in such deep shit here now. And, uh, and that's what it was like. And, uh, you know, it, that was not a sudden discovery that you know uh, revealed itself kind of overnight. This was kind of a death by a thousand cuts. That over the period of about two to three years, it started to get more difficult, more difficult, more difficult, and things started to kind of go wrong, and things started to fall over, and deals fell out of bed, and and in the end, when it was all finished, I had lost the family home. I had um, managed to get myself a into a situation where my marriage had fallen apart and I was living in the Middle East and I was basically flying back and forth to see my young children at the time because I was busy trying to raise investment funds to try to save, you know, what I had left. I was trying to find investors to kind of back it all up and and try to save projects and stuff. So it was incredibly difficult couple of years and it took about five years to stabilize the situation and um and in that time you know lots of humble pie (laughs) and figured it all uh, and and realized 
you know, retrospectively how foolish I had been. And I, had, you know, I just, I had just kind of lost the, the head and allowed ego to kind of creep into the decision-making. And, you know, of course I can afford that, I, you know, this, that, and the other. And so now what I try to do, you know, fast forward to today, I, um, I try to point people in the right direction that are kind of young and impressionable and, you know, trying to do something similar. And I see all the same mistakes being made, you know, cryptocurrency and people are now kind of flat broke having been up like a million euro and things like that. So, and I'm, I'm, I've been doing that through a, a podcast and stuff like that, that I started, but uh, yeah, that gives you just a little bit of the ups and downs. Wow. Wow. Gavin, thank you. You know, like one of my questions, what mistakes have you made in the past? You know, I think you've, you've kind of aced, aced that one. Uh, th- thank you for sharing that. I mean, you, you made it sound very, I wouldn't say very easy, but obviously you're, you're, uh, do you still get, you know, well, I've learned to, uh, you know what, it. it's, it, what's happened is by sharing it on my podcast and by sharing it, you know, um, I, I, I have a little kind of coaching group now that I, I like a masterclass that I teach people some of this stuff and I share my experiences quite often. And by sharing my experiences, it's become kind of like armor. And uh, so I don't really have any, like, I think I've processed everything now that I need to process in terms of, you know, I don't have any regrets. I kind of look back and I say, you know what, that was a very, very expensive MBA. And I learned everything and it cost me quite a lot of money. And so that's how I kind of refer to it. Yeah. And, and if you, if you had the mind you had now, what might've, or what people around you back then might've been able to say, now, Gavin, let's just, let's just, chill 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 here a little bit or someone coming at you appropriately would that be useful that mentor or that yeah one of the things that i realize now in retrospect and which is why i've started coaching myself is that the mistake i had was well first of all in terms of my my family kind of background my dad died when i was uh, in my 20s and so very he, he died when i was 21 and so i didn't have the the kind of the mentor figure to sort of help me steer. And I'm, I'm certain had he been alive and, and witnessed me going through this kind of thing, he would have like, put, you know, grabbed me by the shoulders and said, shook me and said, this is temporary. This is something, this is a cyclical market. It'll go up. You're in the up at the moment, but it will stop and it'll turn down and it'll turn dramatically down and you're going to get caught. And had I, you know, I recognize now the importance of having a mentor or a coach or somebody who has experience, who's been there before and who has your respect. Because if somebody is coming along who you don't see as having the knowledge, uh, having gone through it before and stuff, you don't have the respect for them. Like I had plenty of people saying, oh, Gavin, you're crazy borrowing all this money. And I'm like, get out of here. I've got you know, I know what I'm doing kind of thing. But if somebody who had done really big things had come to me and said, Gavin, can I just tell you, like, I think you are, you know, you've done well, but you need to recognize that this is not going to continue. And you need to kind of like hold your horses and, and start to kind of prepare. And somebody that I kind of like respected and kind of thought to myself, okay, this guy's been around the block. He knows what he's talking about. I'm going to listen to this. That's something that I think I was missing at the time. So he's had the bruises and he said they hurt. Yeah, exactly. Try and to, I try and avoid them. Try and avoid them if you can for all the good reasons. 
Well, this is it. And, and it can be very hard to tell a young sort of ambitious guy who's going places. And, 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 and the thing is, is when it's working, that's the hardest time to tell him that you're doing something wrong. Because like, as far as I was concerned, I was, you know, I was making a lot of money very, very quickly. It wasn't that difficult. It wasn't taxing. And it was kind of like, you know, why would I stop doing this? Explain to me what I'm doing wrong here. And, and that was the bit that I, somebody needed to kind of get through to me. And uh, in retrospect, obviously, I, I've learned the lesson the hard way. But that would have been very hard back then, because I remember 2006, 2007, and 2008, like there was only winners far, far March 2008 when, when uh, um, everything kind of came to, came to March, was it March, March, July 2000, everything came to roost. Everything was up. So it would have been very hard to find that person well, who you're you right. Could, who um, you could the, actually hear. The thing okay. is, is you're right. And, and uh, the problem is, is that, you know, retrospectively, we're all sort of wise, you know. And, and like you say, I actually look at my, my situation and I don't really beat myself up any longer because, because I kind of think to myself, hold on a second. Sean Quinn was a billionaire and he went bankrupt. Tony O'Reilly, the rich list billionaire for, you know, a generation, he was up there at the top of the list, bankrupt. Uh, all of these guys that were like titans in industry, bankrupt. So the fact that I went through my struggles doesn't really look, you know, all that different. And the fact is, human nature is what kind of steers people to make these kind of ridiculous decisions. And self belief, confidence, and all that, it can be a bit infectious, and you start to believe your own kind of, uh, it's like what they, you know, when Steve Jobs wanted to get something done, he had this, they called it the force field or whatever around him and the, where, you know, yes, of course we can do it. We can, we can do something that takes six months in three weeks. Of course it's possible. And he had this ability to make everyone around him believe. And I think a lot of people back in those days, it had gone on for such a length of time that uh, you started to believe that, of course I can continue to do this. Like, why would it stop? Um, so yeah, looking back now, in fact, that is one of the reasons why I pay so much attention to the market today and I'm watching what's happening in the market really, really carefully. What's what I've seen in the stock market, what I've seen, what I see happening in crypto was all predicted over the last, you know, 12 months or so. And if it was the exact same conversations, like I was telling people, I said it on my podcast that crypto is going to collapse. Uh, you know, if you've got a load of money in it, like take the money out, put it to the side, you know, maybe leave some of your money in there, like, you know, go ahead, like, but don't put it all in there. Like, don't go so concentrated on one asset that you can lose it all if it turns bad. And I actually got angry emails and kind of messages on LinkedIn and stuff saying, I didn't know what I was talking about. And that, you know, I like your podcast, but you got to stop talking about the crypto stuff because you don't know what you're talking about. That was the kind of message. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, fine. You, you know, I tried my best. Uh, and, uh, and sure enough, now people are coming out and going, man, I wish I had taken your advice. Like uh, they kind of, they're actually checking themselves into therapy and stuff like that because they, they were up a million and they're now worth 300 euro and things like that. You know what I mean? It's like, total destruction of value it's not like a million and you've got you know half a million total destruction 99.999 percent loss you know and it's the i'd love to talk about the psychological effect because being your mentor now and, and your podcast we'll talk you could share, share about that in a minute is 
it's trying to get that human to process things the right way. And if you're not used to getting kicked, you know, one kick hurts, two, three, ten kicks is just traumatic. So if you go back to your time, when you see someone coming in and they're under pressure, how do you, how do you help them uh, just process it? What structure can you give them to safely try work it out? Well, I'll tell you what I did, first of all, was um, I remember, you know, just so many things were going wrong at the same time. You know, your marriage is coming to an end. You're, you're in the process of losing the beautiful, like, mansion that you built for yourself that you've, of course, tied your ego into in a big way. And so, like, when you're inviting friends over and showing them around, everyone's impressed and stuff. And it all goes into your head, becomes part of your identity. And that's the biggest mistake, I think, that you make is to kind of tie your identity to material things like what you, you know, what you drive or what you, where you live and stuff. Um, one of the things that I did is I said, okay, what can I control and what can I, you know, pay attention to and fitness and health is one of those things. And I kind of took the decision that, you know what, uh, I can't control the way the economy moves. I can't control what people think of me. I can't control anything, but I can control how I show up in terms of my fitness and my diet and my mindset and stuff like that. So I started, you know, voraciously reading a lot of books on personal development, all that kind of stuff, getting your mindset kind of in the right place and uh, put a lot of effort into working out and just getting myself into the fittest possible state that I can. And all of that really helped because you get these endorphins from, from exercise and the endorphins being in exercise started to kind of shift my mindset away from, oh my God, I've lost so much money. I've, you know, I've let down my family and I've done this and I've done that. And I just started moving away. The big thing is comparison is the thief of joy, I think is a statement I've heard. And if you are- Just say, say that again. I love that. Comparison, comparison. Is, the, is the thief of joy. Okay. And if you- um, if you nowadays, you know, people are on social media so frequently that they, they see these amazing posts of guys with super yachts and driving, you know, flashy cars and wearing, uh, you know, amazing sort of watches and walking on beaches and stuff. And people see that and reflect on their life and they sort of go, God, you know, I'm not driving that kind of car. I'm the same age as that guy and I'm not, you know, living the way he's living. And the, the biggest problem is that you don't know what's going on on the other side. You don't know how indebted this guy is. You don't know, is his wife like leaving him because he's so bloody self-centered and focused on his own stuff. All of this stuff is hidden from view. And it comes out later, of course. I mean, everyone was following this. Uh, there's, this there's this guy, this personality on, on uh, social media called Dan Bilzerian. And he's this guy that kind of, flies around in private jets with all of these ladies kind of like going along with them and stuff. And, uh, he, and people suddenly realized that this guy is full of it. Like there's absolutely nothing to it. Like the guy is, his company is going bankrupt and he's now on the run basically and all of this. And you suddenly realize that this, you know, so many young impressionable people were following this guy and following his every word and taking his advice and all that, thinking that because he's showing this, lifestyle that he's obviously achieved it you know and uh, so don't compare yourself to others work on what you can control and do not tie your identity into material things 
that can be stripped away from you if things go bad? Just, just focus on the simple stuff. Like, you know, I, I think one thing you mentioned about fitness isn't sleep really important. Oh yeah. Super important. And something that I don't get a lot of lately because uh, I have a, a two-year-old who uh, wakes up every night and uh, wants to come into bed. But um, yeah, it is super important. People, you know, when I was younger, I was, you know, how, how little sleep can I get by on, you know, because the earlier I get up, the quicker I can get to work and I can get all this stuff done. And uh, the reality is, is, is that your own brain and, uh, you know, brain fog and your ability to deal with crisis and stuff, it's all impacted by the, the lack of sleep. You know, if, you, if you're not getting a proper night's sleep, it's really going to impact you and you're going to feel more tension and more stress and things like that. So, and also in terms of working out and stuff, you know, if you want to improve your performance on the, on the court, whether you're playing tennis or wherever it might be, you know, good night's sleep does an awful lot and, uh, and allows you to kind of perform at your best. And you make better decisions when you're more relaxed. Yeah, you're to totally. See, you're able to see things a bit, e- but clearer maybe, or hear people like you're probably able to hear people. Yeah, I think what you said at the beginning there, when you said just the simple stuff, like mind the simple stuff, that's that's in my view, really, you know, I, I have a couple of things that I'm kind of focused on and chasing after. And, and, and that's it. Like, I just try to focus on those things. I'm not, I try to keep myself as focused on those few things that I consider to be really important to me and not something. And I don't get distracted. I get dozens of emails offering different things every day and you know oh would you like to invest in this and that and the other is like tunnel vision that's the only way and just delete 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 because you have to the one of the things that i figured out is um in order to kind of stay focused on the stuff that matters is when you're when you're faced with a decision the answer is either no or hell yeah okay there's no yeah that sounds okay you know if it's not a damn i really really want that then it's a no instantly instantly a no and that's kind of a way of just cutting to whether or not this is in the right decision making so you've learned you're stronger now at saying no big time yeah just understanding the the discipline like there's a couple of things i i I kind of have these values that i i I kind of keep reminding myself of and the value number one is clarity okay and that is knowing what i want knowing what the big picture is what i'm striving for so i'm not talking about this week or next week i'm talking about 20 years from now what does my life look like and am i the am i are the decisions that i'm making today in you know, alignment with that long-term vision that I have for myself. So that's the clarity. Once you have the clarity, the next thing you need is the focus on achieving those things that will get you there. So every time somebody comes along and asks me, would I like to do this? I quickly say, okay, does this fit into the 20-year vision? If it doesn't, then no, it's a no. Whereas if it's something that will absolutely be a stepping stone in the right direction, then hell yeah, let me in there. Um, then the next one is the discipline. You really have to discipline yourself around this stuff, um, around just how you show up, how you uh, behave in certain ways, how you kind of get the work done. Um, whatever it might be, discipline, I think, is highly important. Consistency is another one. And um, I, I look at consistency across a lot of different ways. But, you know, every day, 
I work out um, seven days a week. And that is just a lot of people kind of, oh, you need a day off. And no, actually, you can you can you can moderate the exercise on a day or two if you're feeling tired. But actually, just even 10 or 15 minutes of moving, that is better than nothing, you know. And so consistently every single day I show up and then consistency in, in your work and in your habits and things like that. And then finally, just executing, making sure that you're actually getting stuff done, that you're not letting it pile up on the desk and moving things from here to there. And, and so between all of those things there, uh, I kind of feel like I'm going in the right direction. And I make sure that I journal in the morning, I kind of take out a thing and I, a bit of meditation to kind of clear the mind and then sit down and say, okay, am I going in the direction that I have set myself? Am I in alignment with that? Am I off course? Now, yesterday I went a bit off course because I went out with some of the guys and uh, we had a nice dinner out and stuff like that. And normally I wouldn't eat so late and I'd be kind of disciplined around what I eat. Okay. Occasionally we're going to go off course, but that's, that's just part of life. But I try to stay pretty disciplined around my diet and stuff. And if you didn't start off in architecture property, um, I think I know what the answer might be. What, what would you love to have been at that 22 year old ready to go? You know, it's funny you say that I, I actually, um, I have a pilot's license, um, but not a commercial pilot's license. I, I went and, uh, started flying a plane around, um, around 1999 or something. And, uh, so I, I got, I took it to the point where I was flying the plane on my own, um, takeoff landing. And we had started training on cross-country flight and stuff like that. And, uh, and then what happened was my, my daughter, who just turned 18 uh, last Monday, she, turned, uh, she was born. And uh, I can remember thinking to myself, okay, Gavin, life insurance, get yourself some good life insurance. So you and I have a common fr- uh, friend who sells life insurance. And uh, he sort of said to me, okay, Gavin, uh, what are you doing like outside of work that might you know, be a problem for the life insurance company and flying a plane was one of them. So I, I knocked that on the head. But in, like, it's funny, I'm a very, very curious person and I can spend absolutely hours, you know, studying things like, for example, the cosmos. Like I'm fascinated by, you know, black holes and the, the cosmos, stuff like that. But equally, I can get completely caught up in the history of the earth, like you know, glaciation, the ice age, all that kind of stuff. So I'm constantly like voraciously, you know, taking all these boxes in terms of my curiosity. And so I get, I get people saying, you should have been a scientist. You should have been this, you should have been that just because of the curiosity, I think. Maybe a teacher. Yeah. That's actually something that's starting to come across now through my coaching. I find myself to be very, very happy when I am uh, coaching or even just communicating. I think I, what I did was about four years ago, I joined Toastmasters here in East Point. Um, there's a Toastmasters that's part of Enterprise Ireland. And, uh, and I just became kind of an outside member. And learning to speak and communicate and give a speech and things like that, I found uh, that I'm quite good at it, but I also found that I really, really enjoy it. And there's no sense of fear or nervousness or any of that. Like I hear people saying like that, you know, the biggest fear in their life, like even more so than dying is actually public speaking. And you just give me an opportunity and I'll be happy to stand up and speak. And 
so I kind of feel like I've discovered kind of late in life, I guess, that communication, coaching, speaking, all of that stuff is something that I really actually enjoy and getting across an idea or a concept or advice or whatever it is that I can sort of add value to somebody's life. But you have that authenticity, that experience, that, that, that learning experience, let's maybe put it in, in a more positive uh, or neutral, maybe. Well, positive well you, you know what it is, is, I mean, that makes an impact. I think people love stories and they love history. And if you're able to kind of tie a lesson into a personal story or into some sort of story that people can kind of relate to and put themselves in the protagonist's shoes or whatever, you can kind of make it very, very compelling. And, uh, but like, I'm equally able to sort of stand up and talk about, you know, how amazing the, the, this latest James Webb space telescope, like the images came out in the last few days, fascinating stuff. Like I could spend hours talking about it and all that, but I think people, the impact comes from your personal experience and the highs and lows. And obviously having a roller coaster of a career that does tend to be more, uh, sort of, memorable and people want to hear that story before they want to hear about James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But then, then you've, if, 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 if you can get them to listen, then they'll hear the James Webb. Yeah. Be yeah. able to impart that. Because what do they say? Communication is it's uh, the person able to hear the message, not the person delivering the message. That's, That's actually, it. Well, That's yeah, it. exactly. One of the things we learn in, in Toastmasters is that you can speak at somebody or you can communicate. And it's not the same thing. Uh, you know, is the person receiving the message? That's communication. Whereas speaking at you, I can just like say a lot of words that I want to kind of tick off on my list, but you aren't receiving it, you know? Gosh, I, I love that. What advice would you give to a younger person entering the workforce or who might be in the workforce unhappy where they are and want to make a move? What, what advice as... Because you, you've hired lots of people over your working life. What, what advice would you give them? Um, well, there's a couple of things around the workforce. First of all, I, I see a lot of people um, out there that are looking to work from home. And this actually ties into my, my, my career. Like, you know, I'm involved in East Point Business Park. I run the kind of the day-to-day -day here. And I've got, you know, 37 buildings that are filled with occupiers like Google and Oracle and all of that. And there's a huge question mark now post the pandemic. Where is the workplace? You know, what's happening to the workplace? A lot of people working from home don't want to come back to the office. They're being told they have to come in two days a week. And I'm sort of scratching my head. And I'm, mm, well, what does that look like for me as, an, as a landlord, first of all? But beyond that, I'm actually, I've been speaking to the different CEOs of companies and stuff, and they're looking to recruit people. And they're saying that this is a big problem that you know people want to work from home and stuff. And one of the best ways to learn from anybody who's experienced and who's you know kind of more mature and has more sort of miles on the clock is from osmosis, being in the same room as them. And if you're a person who is sort of saying to yourself that you like your lifestyle, you want to kind of work from home and all this, you're simply going to be left behind in terms of the experience that you can gain. Um, we have uh, an engineering firm here in, in East Point, and they were saying that they cannot do the work from home because they've got young graduates that need to absorb all of this. And you can't train them eight hours a day, 
But what they do is they pick up, they overhear the conversations, they overhear the, you know, they understand the priority from hearing you articulated on the phone to somebody else or whatever. And so all of this is there. Whereas if you're remote, it's just not going to happen. And the other thing is the culture of the business. There's going to be a lot of um, people leaving businesses, uh, you know, getting jobs in other businesses because they're working from home. There's no loyalty any longer because your kitchen table or your home study looks the same, regardless of who's paying you the, the monthly salary, you know? And so that is an aspect that's a negative from the company point of view, from the employee's point of view. If you want to get pay increases, the best way to do that is to move sideways because, you know, you're, you're not going to get a 25% increase in your salary from your current job, but you might get that moving sideways to another job. However, do that enough times and it becomes a bit of a red flag for most employers and they start to think that, mm, I don't think this guy, this, this, this guy's not going to be with us for very long. He, uh, he's, he's just marching forward and, and, you know, taking names and moving on, you know. It's interesting. So I suppose it's, it's reading what's in front of you, trying to understand what the leaders, the organization, I suppose it's down to their articulation because you've articulated very simply there, which I, I understand. But sometimes in corporate speak, it doesn't land. Uh, people can't hear it. It's going back to the Toastmasters thing. It's how you communicate the message. Yeah, it's I mean, well, from my point of view, this is um, kind of a, a systemic risk from from our point of view. Like we see all, we have all these buildings that were filled with people. And then suddenly people are telling us, oh, you know, we actually don't need all that space. We'd like to give some of it back to you and things like that. And so naturally that's, you know, it's discouraging at the moment, but then from the conversations I've had with the, you know, the different owners of the businesses and stuff, they're, they're saying that no, we need to get people back. And so it's actually, it's opened my eyes and it's made me realize that as a, as the person who is running the campus here, the business park, I'm saying, okay, what, what can I do now to improve the facilities, the amenities, so that young people want to come back to work here, that it's a cool place to work. And that when they arrive in, like the employers are putting gyms in and they're doing various things that they kind of think will attract people back. But then at lunchtime, what do you do? So we're, we've got tennis courts here and we've got various things so that people can actually train. And, uh, and we're looking at little add-ons that'll make it kind of a cool place at lunchtime. I like that. It's funny because I grew up playing Gaelic football in Fairview Park, which is just beside your office. Yeah, so right across the water. Yeah, a, a, a long, a long time ago, but a very, I, I, I love the area. My, my next question is, is what's next for you? Okay, you, you, your first iteration as master of the universe of property, and you did it very well. And unfortunately, your wings got clipped. You probably got too close to the sun, as as a lot of people did. You've now reinvented yourself. There's the podcast. Maybe talk a bit about that. The mentoring, obviously, you're running the property management people. What there's nine, nine is it nine thousand people employed? Yeah, it's a, give, give or take. I mean, it, they're all interconnected. This is part of having the clarity I mentioned earlier. Is you know knowing all of the different chess pieces on the chessboard. We'll say okay, and understanding how each one relates to the other. And so, I mean, I I look after East Point, but I'm still very much the investor developer insofar as I'm part of a family business. The family business own built and owns this this business park, and so all of the different buildings and stuff that we have retained ownership of, they are they're approaching 25 years old in some cases. And because of the age of those buildings, 
they now need to go through kind of a re uh, a revigor invigoration redesign whatever it might be but the big focus now is around sustainability uh, there's a thing called ESG that everyone's kind of focused on at the moment so i'm trying to become a a real kind of niche authority in that area and learning as much as i can about how to improve buildings without increasing the carbon footprint all of that is the very very important to the employer or the occupier who's going to move in but it's also important to the young people that the occupier is trying to employ and so it's it's all interconnected then the uh, that my, my podcast initially when i started that off i started it off as a, a lockdown project uh, you know lockdown kicked off on the 17th of march or whenever it was and uh, we we were all at home uh, not allowed to leave the house within sort of two kilometers or whatever it was. And so the world got very small very quickly. And uh, I kind of thought, what am I going to do here that, you know, is beyond these four walls? And so I started the podcast and I called it Behind the Facade. And the reason I used that name was because I feel like what we talked about earlier, about the comparison, all that, there's a lot of stuff going on behind that facade. Like somebody presents this image, somebody presents this kind of persona but it's what's going on behind it that actually is important, you know? And it also ties into the fact that the facade is the outside of the envelope of the building and all that kind of stuff, which I'm trying to build. And so um, I started doing that. And one of the first guests I brought on was a guy from Korea who is a sustainability expert and stuff. So it's kind of, you know, you can see how you're joining up the dots, you know, it's, I'm now I'm talking to these guys that are sustainability experts, people around the world, that are trying to improve the built environment in as sustainable as uh, possible, as you know, way as possible, and um, and so it's all that. And now, post pandemic, hopefully we're we're beyond the worst of it. It's now trying to read the tea leaves and understand. Okay, what does the future of the workplace look like? It's not going to stay two days a week for very long, in my opinion, because of the fact that people the culture of the business is so important and if people start losing if, if there's an attrition rate increase because people um, are now at home they couldn't care less what you know where they work because they don't have friendships with all of their colleagues and workplace um, mates and stuff and so now i'm trying to kind of get my head around and say okay what do i need to do um so it's, it's all kind of interconnected as far as i'm concerned Having a podcast, naturally, I get a lot of questions from people asking me, um, you know, I've got, you know, I get questions all the time. It's it's actually very rewarding having a podcast because you get these questions and people are saying, Gavin, I, you know, bought a site, I need to do this, need to do that. What do you think I should do? And I kind of think, okay, give them some advice. So I've been giving for the last two years since I started the podcast, been giving out advice here, there and everywhere. And people kept coming back and saying, you should start a, a course or a program or something. So I eventually did that. And I have now a small little mastermind group and, uh, and we meet uh, once a week and go and do a Zoom call in the evening and we go through all the kind of advice. So I'm trying to get people from being kind of amateurs to thinking like a professional and how to scale your business and, and how to kind of bring investors on board and stuff. So you can actually, you know, join the course and come away with a real understanding on how to kind of move forward. And to make sure that they have the right people around them yeah exactly uh, the, the before mentor. they before they make push the big button 
Yeah. Well, th- th- I mean, that's the number one thing is uh, one of the things at the very beginning of the whole thing is, is having that clarity that we mentioned. And so I have a, a, a module called the roadmap module, and it's about, you know, creating a roadmap where you're trying to get to. And a lot of people, they, they, they would like to be wealthy and that's kind of the extent of what they want. And I say, no, no, no that's not enough. Being wealthy is not enough. You have to understand how you're going to achieve that wealth. Are you going to achieve it through construction? Are you going to achieve it through real hands-on rolling up the sleeves? Or do you want to be a passive investor? You know, you have to understand what it is, are your strengths and weaknesses? And, and you know, are you going to be in a, trying to push against a closed door or an open door? Gosh, I love that. Five words, Gavin, to describe your career journey to date and it's not over i know that there's <laughs> a, a number of other iterations i believe to come but i'm just curious five words if you can or three is, words maybe. is uh is roller coaster one word or two <laughs> well we, we won't be we won't be uh, uh, semantic about it we'll take that as it is. <laughs> um i would say you know um i would say past and present and future you know three different time frames uh, don't look back in regret. Look forward. I'm not. I'm not. I don't drive a car in the rearview mirror, and I don't treat my career in the same way. I look forward, and I think to myself, "Okay, how can I improve the world?" Uh, and that sounds very grandiose, but actually, I'm thinking to myself, "How? What can I do today that actually kind of adds value to the the, the different stakeholders that?" I kind of come into interaction with on a regular basis. Um, that's a lot more than five words, but that's how I can kind of figure out how to articulate it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe what I'm hearing is that rather than get caught in red thinking, which is the, it's all green thinking. Yeah. And that, that's possibilities rather than you can't do this. The glass is half full, maybe rather than half empty. Definitely glass half full. And um, I guess it's just possibility and future focus. Okay. G- Gavin, I love that. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. And I- I've just written down here, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. I just think that's a, a really ra- uh, 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 um, grounding, grounding bunch of words. So simple. Uh, well, it's not you- mine. I think, I, no, I, think it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't know who to tr- attribute to, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't no, uh, pick it, that up. It, it's very simple. In, yeah, in, yeah in, no, it's, and, a, it's a good one. And you've been doing, but listen, I want to thank you so much for giving your time today and sharing uh, your uh, uh, most interesting, most interesting story today. My pleasure, James. Thanks very much. Thanks, Gavin. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Career Scoop, brought to you by Elevate Career Advice and Elevate Executive Selection Dublin and Bermuda. I'm James Fitzsimons, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Bye.